This week, scientists solve the mystery of the missing volcano. How could you have this major eruption that had this major effect on global climate? And where was it in the ice core record? It just didn't make any sense. And we can treat HIV pretty well in trials. Why not in real life? You run into all kinds of barriers that you don't take into account when you're doing the science. Plus the geologists who are on call when quakes happen. This is The Nature Podcast for July the 9th, 2015. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Now first to those quake watchers. Noah Baker has been finding out how a group of geologists raised the alarm when a huge quake struck Nepal earlier this year. On the 25th of April, the ground started to shake in Nepal. This would be one of the most devastating earthquakes to hit the region in a generation. On the other side of the world, in the USA, seismologist Gavin Hayes woke up. I received the call, um, as has happened frequently for large earthquakes around the world. Um, I got up and uh, went to my computer and logged in to see uh, the earthquake and to start working on it. Gavin works for the National Earthquake Information Center, or NEIC, in Colorado. We respond to global earthquakes, so we have a mandate from the US government to provide information about where and how big earthquakes are, both domestically and and around the world, and to provide information not just about the size of those earthquakes, but the impact that those events might have on population and infrastructure. From the second the quake begins, data from seismology stations around the world rush into the NEIC via satellite, and the race is on. I get to my computer, I log into um, our our USGS system and my first priority is to start working on the the magnitude of the earthquake. The NEIC team mobilised quickly to work out the quake's vital statistics. The impact an event has is based on a number of things. One, where it is. Uh, Two, how big it is. Uh, Three, how deep it is. And four, how vulnerable local structures are to the shaking that that event will cause at the surface of the earth. So we need to analyze how people and infrastructure in a given location respond to that kind of shaking. Speed is of the essence. Automatic systems identify these earthquakes within a matter of minutes. Um, And then the duty seismologists Uh, working in our 24 by 7 operations will interact with those computer systems to refine the location, um, get an accurate and stable magnitude, and then release that information to uh, the public, to to the internet, um, and to whomever else is tying into those data feeds within about 15 or 20 minutes. The US Geological Survey says a strong earthquake measuring 7.5 has struck 77 kilometers northwest of Nepal's capital, Kathmandu. News reports start to break, and on the other side of the states, in Washington, D.C., another phone rings. It was around 2 or 3 a.m., I believe, when I got the notification. My first thought is, you know, uh uh-oh, this could be a big one. That's Gary Mayberry. The first thing is for me to wake up, and then I would just start searching for more information. Gari is the geological hazard advisor for the USA's Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance. 
I would start looking on the internet, seeing if, any, if anything had come through the news, go to the USGS National Earthquake Information Center website and see if there has been any additional information there. So my goal is to, to try to get as accurate of a picture of what has happened that I can share with uh, the decision makers in the office. Since our office coordinates the U.S. government's response to international disasters. Like Gavin, Gari has to work fast. When lives are at stake, every minute counts. There are just a, a number of days, three or less is the conventional thought, when it's possible for search and rescue teams to help to rescue people from buildings that have collapsed. So if we are considering sending a team from the United States, it's going to take quite a bit of time just to get the teams out there to put the logistics together and to fly that distance. And so the sooner that we can make a decision, uh, the sooner we can get started on that process and hopefully get teams out in time. Within hours of the earthquake's occurrence, the USA responded with aid. Ultimately, a team of over 100 people were deployed to respond to the earthquake. And that was a decision that was made um, shortly, pretty shortly after the earthquake occurred. But despite all these efforts, the quake in Nepal was devastating, killing more than 9,000 people. It serves as a pointed reminder of the importance of rapid response, something which has not always existed. In 2004, when the 9.1 earthquake happened offshore of Sumatra, um, we really weren't equipped to properly characterise how big that event was. And no one really knew how big the event was until several hours, even up to half a day after that event occurred. Fast forward seven years to 2011 and the Tohoku Magnitude 9 earthquake, and we had fully characterised how big that event was within about one hour. And so we've gotten a lot better. We have the systems in place to characterise both small events and the very largest events that the Earth can create. And I think we're at a situation now where we can provide that information very quickly and very accurately. But no matter how sophisticated our systems get, for the quake hunters, phone calls in the middle of the night are an inevitability. Uh, we tend, I think, to be light sleepers, so whenever our phones go off with either text messages or a phone call from um, one of the duty seismologists, we're ready to get up and, and respond to it. Um, my, my personal feeling is, is to try and quieten the phone as soon as possible so my wife and my baby don't wake up. That package was by Noah Baker. You heard from Gary Maybury and Gavin Hayes. To read more about the USGS on-call quake team, read the feature by Alexandra Witsey at nature.com forward slash news. Coming up in just a moment, the mystery of the missing volcano that caused climate chaos 1,500 years ago. But first, it's time for the research highlights with Sharmini Bundell. Look carefully at a seahorse's tail and you'll see that in cross-section it's square. New work suggests that the peculiar shape helps them hang on tight to corals and plants. Researchers based in South Carolina printed 3D bendable models of both square seahorse tails and normal circular tails and tested them for things like grip strength and ability to withstand pressure. Square tails came up trumps in stiffness, strength and resilience to impact. The authors suggest using their findings to build strong, bendy, grippy robot limbs. More in the journal Science. Fingerprint scanners could be made more secure by using ultrasound to capture prints. 
Normally, when your finger is scanned, its ridges and valleys produce a pattern of voltages. But moisture or dirt can confuse the circuit and make it illegible. The new ultrasound method records the time it takes for a sound wave to bounce back from a finger. Just like sonar, a pattern emerges when the wave bounces back slightly more slowly from a valley than a ridge. Sensing these deeper characteristics means prints are less likely to be fakeable. Unless you can 3D print a finger. Find out more in Applied Physics Letters. 536 AD was a tough year around the world. It was a year of constant winter. Here's what the Roman scholar Procopius wrote about that year. The sun gave forth its light without brightness, like the moon during this whole year. Men were free neither from war nor pestilence, nor any other thing leading to death. Historical sources from China and the Mayan Empire in South America also record a gruelling year, with crop failures and famines. The cause of this climate chaos? In 536, there was a major volcanic eruption. This is geologist Joe McConnell, who's at the Desert Research Institute in Reno, Nevada. And this is the prevailing theory, that the Ilopango volcano in South America blew its top, blew loads of sulphur into the atmosphere, and cooled the climate worldwide. The problem is, well, actually, there are two problems. We didn't have a major volcanic eruption in 536 recorded in the ice core, uh, ice cores from around the world. How could you have this major eruption that had this major effect on global climate, and where was it in the ice core record? It just didn't make any sense. Ice cores, long cylinders of ice extracted from places like Antarctica or Greenland, are usually great indicators of what's up with the Earth's climate and can go back thousands of years. But in 536, they were silent. There was no volcano in evidence. This seemed to directly contradict the tree ring record, which showed a distinctly cold year, a clear fingerprint of a volcanic event. Yeah, you sort of had these two communities with the ice core community... Uh pretty confident in its, in its timescales, and the tree ring community very confident in their timescales. And so yeah, everybody's trying to be objective with their data, and uh, that was the problem. There was always this inconsistency. So that's problem one. The tree rings, the ice cores, they don't match. And problem two? Uh, six years later, there's the first uh, event of plague in Europe in uh, 542 in Constantinople and, and that area in the dying era of the Roman Empire. Volcanoes have been linked to plague, too, because they create colder, wetter conditions that help the bacterium breed. And guess what? There's no record of that in the ice cores, either. Historians wonder whether the previous eruption, in 536, could be linked to the subsequent plague. But six years is a long time. Too long, really, for the Ilopango volcano still to be having an effect. And either way, why was there no record of this volcanic activity in the ice cores? All of this got Joe and his team thinking. They've developed new methods for analysing ice cores more sensitively. In my lab, we uh, specialise in these very high-resolution, sort of -of state-of-the-art measurements of ice core chemistry. So we go out and collect an ice core or get ice cores from other people who've collected them, and we analyse them continuously. So that means we we cut a longitudinal sample from the ice core uh, and load it up onto an ice core melter that we've developed, and and the ice melts slowly, and then we pump the sample off and analyse it in real time at all these different instruments. Uh, and that's different in the, than in the past when people would cut it up into little, the ice core up into little blocks and analyze them as discrete samples. And what that means is we get much higher time resolution when we turn it into time. And did that make a bit more sense of particularly this event in 536 and around that time and, o- and other events in history? 
You know, it did because, so this is, what we were trying to do was, was develop an ice core time scale that was independent of the tree ring time scale, but at the same time consistent with it. Uh, and so there was this event, and it was discovered in 2012, or at least published in 2012, and it was evidence of a very strong um, cosmic ray event that you could see in the trees, and that resulted in a big increase in carbon-14 in the tree ring record. We were able to find that in, in a similar isotope in ice cores. So that allowed us, that gave us a, a completely unambiguous marker that we could link, so we could tie the tree rings together with the uh, ice core timescales. As we did this new dating, we, we realized that the old timescales were off by about seven years. A difference of seven years doesn't seem like very much to me over two and a half thousand years of history or so, but I suppose it does make a big difference. Well, it makes a really big difference when you're trying to understand what is forcing climate, what's forcing the temperature or the climate of the Earth uh, and these volcanoes. You know, it's been well known that volcanoes, at least in the recent past, had, uh, had caused this major cooling. You know, we get an, the 1991 eruption of Pinatubo in, in the Philippines uh, caused cooling and was predicted and then there was... And, it all makes perfect sense. So if you're trying to quantify this and really understand quantita- quantitatively the climate system, uh, you really need to have these records be exact. And so that seven-year offset was a really important uh, offset. What else do your new data reveal about the effects of volcanoes on climate through through history on, on other events like this? Well, so what it, what it tells us is, that, first of all, it's very consistent. Over the past 2,500 years now, we have a very consistent you get a volcano in the northern hemisphere, and within a year or two, you get within a, less than a year, typically, you get a major cooling in the northern hemisphere. But if it happens in the equator, in the equatorial regions, in the tropics, it, it gets sort of lofted and, and goes both directions very easily, north and south. Not only do you get an immediate cooling, but the cooling you know, typically lasts much longer. And then the other thing is that because of this high precision of the, this very accurate data, very high resolution data that we develop in the ice cores now, we are able to identify a whole lot more volcanoes than in the past. In the 536 example, what we know now is 536 was a northern hemisphere eruption, and then in 540 there was a second eruption in the tropics. And that kind of double whammy is what really hit climate. And so instead of looking for one volcano, huge volcano in 536, and then not really having you know having some sort of poor explanation for why it took six years to result in the plague in in Europe, we know is this double combination of the first 536 eruption and then the second one that further cooled the climate that was already cold from the first eruption. Can you correlate any more widely social and political change that people might not have thought was related to climate or volcanoes or anything like that? Can you now link any of those two more convincingly in other situations? That's where we're going now. Um, I suspect that as we look at things more carefully, we'll see that plague, famine and so forth is, is even more related to volcanic climate forcing than we thought it was. That's a really important thing for climate modeling and to then presumably allow us to predict the future climate much more accurately as well. So we're not just looking backwards. This also has important implications for going forward as well. That was Joe McConnell of Nevada's Desert Research Institute. The paper is at nature.com slash nature. Coming up at the end of the show, it's the News Roundup. But first, a feature this week looks at why HIV is so difficult to treat in the field when good treatments exist in the lab. Shamini Bundell called scientist Farley Claycorn, whose team helps governments conduct aid programs. I am an infectious disease epidemiologist. Uh, I trained in infectious diseases. I've been working in retroviruses for the last 30 years. And um, HIV and AIDS is 
a big focus of yours. Is this something that's still a big problem globally? Yes, it is. Uh, we've made many, many gains against HIV-AIDS over the last 15 years, but there are approximately 32 million people living with HIV today. And this year, there will still be uh, quite a number of millions of new infections. The HIV epidemic is is associated with the 80s quite a lot. These days, it's not necessarily as fatal, certainly in, in developed countries. I mean, are we there with the science that we've, you know, almost defeated it? We, we know how to prevent HIV, definitely. We know that condoms work. We know that prevention of mother-to-child transmission works. Uh, what we don't have is a model that works everywhere because transmission uh, uh, factors are slightly different everywhere. And the interplay of, of transmission factors play out differently in different settings. What is the problem then? Why, why is HIV and AIDS still such a problem? For treatment, the, the issue is one of scale. And uh, because we have 32 million people living with HIV in the world today, it is getting the required treatment to all of those people. For prevention, uh, the issue is one of human behavior and the complexity of human behavior. And these are the issues that are not simple. So, so while knowing the science is important, applying the science is just as important. And you run into all kinds of barriers to implementation at scale that you really don't take into account when you're doing the science. If we know how to do it and it works in a small trial, what then goes wrong between a small-scale trial and trying to implement this in a whole country, say? Um, so I'll give you a number of barriers. One is not keeping their appointments, and there are many reasons for that. One is cost. The other is transport. These are all very practical problems. The third is disclosure. So being able to tell someone that you're HIV infected in your family or in your, your community so that you, you can leave your family and go travel to the clinic. And then there are issues such as taking your supply of drugs home and putting it in a safe place where people can't take it away from you or where it won't be stolen and sold in the market and where temperature or other issues such as Amazingly, issues like rats eating the medication. Uh, all of these are documented reasons why people didn't take their medication. So there's an entire spectrum of reasons at the individual level why uh, people can't take their medications uh, according to the way that they are prescribed. So it seems like uh, that when the scientists are, are looking into HIV treatments and, and, and drugs and things, they're kind of assuming ideal conditions that don't actually exist in the real world. Well, you've just hit your, put your finger on something we always say, that clinical trial conditions are not reproduced in the real world. And when you do a study and you come up with a finding, applying that finding to a to a large number of people is where you run into enormous problems. And there are lots of solutions that various groups have developed for the treatment of HIV, but also detection and prevention, uh, such as offering screenings at clinics where people might already go for other medicines or, or vitamins, or making sure condoms are available in townships that might be too small to have their own health centre. But do you think that scientists at the level of maybe producing drugs 
ought to be thinking more about the eventual implementation. Absolutely. I mean, it, it goes almost to the core of what medical advances are all about. That is, if we have medical advances, we should always be adopting what we call a public health approach. How do we get this advance to the most people to achieve the most good? That was Farley Cleghorn of the Futures Group in Washington, D.C., talking to Shamini Bundell about the challenges of tackling HIV and AIDS in real-world situations. Read more on this problem in the future by Erica Check hayden Time now for the news, and Lauren Morello joins me on the line from Washington, D.C. Now, uh, I'm less excited about D.C. than I am about Pluto this week because New Horizons is approaching its destination, isn't it? That's right. Um, The NASA spacecraft launched in 2006, and it's finally getting to Pluto out there on the fringes of the solar system, about 5 billion kilometres away. And we're going to get our first good close-up look at the planet that isn't a planet anymore. And what's it been doing on its close approach so far? It's been taking a lot of pictures. Um, I guess about a month ago, the pictures from New Horizons became better than any existing picture we have of Pluto. The previous best one we had was from the Hubble Space Telescope, and honestly, um, it was just like a pixelated blur. You could tell that Pluto was spherical, but that's about it. (laughs) It's starting to look like a dwarf planet now, um, and we've got some pictures of its largest moon, Charon. And it was going to look for some more moons, wasn't it, just to check that we hadn't missed any previously? It did. So so the tricky thing is that if you don't really have good pictures of a planetary body because you haven't visited it, you also don't know if there's anything you're at risk of smacking into on the way to visit it. Um, Pluto has five moons that we know about. A lot of them were discovered in the last few years. And so part of what the New Horizons mission has been doing is these kind of, uh, what they call them, hazard checks. Um, They've been looking for moons or other debris that could harm the spacecraft. Um, And so they completed the last of these checks, I think, on the 4th of July, and it's official. They're not going to find any new moons on this mission, which has, has bummed out our reporter covering the mission. Yeah, poor Alex Whitsey was really hoping for some more moon buddies for Pluto. She was. She was She was rooting for them pretty hard. <laughs> uh, she did report, however, um, on a little hiccup that New Horizons had last week. Brilliant timing. What happened to the poor spacecraft? Uh, well, I guess it decided that it wasn't getting enough attention and it wanted to give everybody a fright. Um, it went into safe mode. Basically, what this means is it stopped collecting data and it sent a message back to Earth saying, you know, I'm in trouble. Check me out. Um, the difficulty here is that it takes nine hours to get a signal to Pluto and back again. So it's not anything like diagnosing problems in real time. Um, it turns out that what happened was that the spacecraft had been programmed with instructions that overloaded its computer. The good news is they've recovered from this. They weren't planning to give any more um, instructions like the ones that sent the spacecraft into safe mode from this point on. And the word on the street is that they lost about 6% of their data, but not any of the highest priority data. Okay, so there's still the science has not been radically disturbed. No, and I mean, this, this happens. Um, you know, it's not unusual. NASA has a spacecraft called Dawn that's orbiting uh, another dwarf planet, Ceres. Um, and apparently at the end of June, the Dawn spacecraft briefly went into safe mode. This happened with the the very successful Voyager probes, which are out at the edge of the solar system now. Um, 
you know, it's not unexpected, but that doesn't mean that it didn't kind of give everybody a heart attack. <laughs> and I do love the idea that maybe just a few overexcited scientists sat around in New Horizons headquarters and just kind of pressed all the buttons at once. <laughs> I don't know if that's quite <laughs> fair, Carrie, but... Send all your hate mail to Carrie, New Horizon scientists. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Podcast at nature.com. Now, of course, the biggest bit of this mission is still to come because New Horizons is going to fly directly past Pluto. It is. So it's, it's going to have a 24-hour flyby on July 14th. So it will take pictures of Pluto. It will take pictures of its largest moon, Charon. It will take observations of the atmospheres of Pluto and Charon. Um... And in the middle, there will be a little nerve-wracking sequence where it goes radio silent as it goes through Pluto and Charon's um, shadows. And then about 12 hours after its closest approach, it will uh, reestablish contact with everybody on Earth. Excellent. And we will know uh, next week whether it has safely survived its transit. Right. It's supposed to uh, reconnect with Earth around 9 o'clock U.S. Eastern Time on Tuesday night. All right. Well, we'll wait till then to hear more. And in the meantime, we'll move on to our second story, which is quite a surprising one, I think, for this for the scientists you've asked for comment anyway. This concerns the case of a researcher called Dong Pyu Han. Right. So he was a biomedical scientist at Iowa State University working on an HIV vaccine. And it turns out that he fabricated and falsified some of his data. Um, And so he just was sentenced to 57 months in prison on the 1st of July. He's been fined $7.2 million, and when he gets out of prison, he's going to be under supervised release for three years. Those are some big numbers, 7.2 million in fines and the longest sentence that's ever been given to a U.S. researcher for misconduct. That's what our sources believe. Um, The first U.S. researcher who was sentenced to prison for misconduct was sentenced in 2006, and he received a year and a day in jail. Um, And so this is well beyond that. This is um, more than four and a half years, if I'm doing my math right on the fly. What was it about this guy's case that led to such a long and, and pretty severe sentence, as many of your sources consider it? So this is an interesting case, and it kind of exposes how uneven punishment is in the United States for research misconduct and research fraud. Um, Han had the bad luck to attract the attention of a pretty powerful U.S. senator from Iowa named Charles Grassley. Grassley has a special in- interest in investigating misconduct in the biomedical sciences, and um you know, the, the first step in a case like this is normally for the home institution to do an investigation supervised by the Office of Research Integrity, um, which looks into alleged misconduct involving um, grants from the National Institutes of Health. Um, and so the Office of Research Integrity banned Han from receiving any more federal grant money for three years, which is the maximum penalty it usually gives out for somebody of his experience level. He was the junior investigator on this research. Um, And Senator Grassley uh, wrote to ORI saying this is a light penalty. He deserves more. Um, I believe he mentioned the case on the Senate floor. And, um, you know, what everybody basically thinks is that this influenced the federal prosecutor in Iowa to bring a case. Do you think that this sets a precedent for perpetrators of misconduct receiving more severe penalties in future, or is this going to be kind of an outlier? You know, it's hard to say right now. I mean, there are some factors that play into this. He was doing research on 
an HIV vaccine, which I think to some people seems an especially cruel avenue of research to falsify. We do get some sense there may be some legislation coming down the pike that will try and standardize this, but you know it's always hard to get something like that through Congress. They're occupied with things that seem more urgent to them. All right. Okay. Thanks, Lauren, for all of that. Those stories on Dong Pyu Han and on New Horizons Getting to Pluto are available as always at nature.com slash news. Also new this week on our YouTube channel, a Lego-tastic look at whether driverless cars will be good for the environment, as well as for lazy drivers. Find out why with the help of Lego at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more juicy science news and maybe a bit of gossip if you're lucky. In the meantime, look out for a podcast extra from Adam about how beautiful science is. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. 